0: Alright, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week at verse 12. We're going to work our way through the end of the chapter. When I was 9 years old, I received one of my favorite Christmas gifts of all time. My mom and dad purchased me a Walkman. And I I immediately went to work building up my CD collection when when I got this Walkman. And I understand that that these things are kind of obsolete at this point. You know, nine-year-olds now have iPhones and and tablets, and technology has moved so much in the last 20 years. But but at the time, this was an amazing gift. And all I wanted to do was go to Walmart. I wanted to go to Best Buy. I wanted to start to build up my CD collection so I could listen to CDs with my Walkman. And the first CD that I purchased with my own money was Now That's What I Call Music, Volume 1. And you you may remember seeing the infomercials for these CDs. You may remember seeing them at the store. If you're not familiar with the Now albums, they're compilations of the most popular songs on the chart in a given year. And so in 1998, my first CD had songs from artists like The Backstreet Boys, Hanson, Lenny Kravitz, Radiohead, Janet Jackson, The Spice Girls, and KC and JoJo, among other now washed-up artists. See, over the last 20 years, these, these Now albums have been a consistent part of our culture. We, we don't even realize it. They've kind of faded from the mainstream. But on August 2nd, just a few weeks ago, they released their 71st edition of Now That's What I Call Music. They've also released 85 special editions, ranging from That's what, Now That's What I Call Country, to That's What I Call Yacht Rock, to That's What I Call Power Ballads, to That's What I Call Disney, and, and everything else in between. Their business model for the last 20 years has been simple. They're willing to approach any genre of music and mine it for all of its greatest hits. And this is a simple case of supply and demand. They supply the hits, and we as the consumer demand the hits. And we, we understand this concept. Look, if I go to Target and I'm looking to buy a George Jones album, I'm not going to reach for pure country. I'm not going to grab It Just Comes Natural. I'm not going to pick Troubadour off the shelf. I'm going straight for the album that has his 50 number one hits. I'm looking for one record with all of his best songs. I'm looking for decades of hits from the king of country compiled in one convenient place. We're often drawn to the concept of greatest hits when it comes to music. We love the idea of owning one album with all the songs we grew up on. All the songs we can sing along to. All the songs that transport us back to a different time and place. We love the idea of all of our favorites being in one location. And while we're completely justified and and welcome to carry this greatest hits mentality in our consumption of music, we can't let this greatest hits mentality bleed over into our consumption of Jesus Christ. You know, a few weeks ago when we were studying the prologue of John, we talked about how Jesus, how John describes Jesus as the fullness of God's grace and truth. That when Jesus walked the earth, he was both gracious to sinners and true to himself. See, when Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment, not us. And so in Jesus Christ, we see a perfect balance of God's grace and truth. He toes that line perfectly. But if we're honest, we're a lot more comfortable talking about that first concept. We enjoy talking about God's grace. We enjoy considering His unending love for us, His, His radical mercy, His reckless love, His consistent willingness to forgive us. You know, we're all about grace, and rightfully so, but we can't become so overwhelmed with grace that we forget about truth. We can't forget that certainly Christ came to save, but Christ also came to condemn. On the last day, Christ is going to sort all of human history into two categories, saved and unsaved, redeemed and lost, sheep and goats. And so we can't camp out in our favorite portions of Scripture. We can't bypass, overlook, or ignore difficult packet, uh, passages. We can't only play the greatest hits of Jesus. Because if we only play the greatest hits of Jesus, if we only play the, the, the stories about Jesus that we enjoy, we're not teaching, we're not reading, we're not considering the full counsel of God. and We're not seeing the full picture of Jesus. And so we can't settle for the greatest hits. You know, and if we were going to carry this this greatest hits mentality into our our study of John, we may skip the passage we're going to talk about today. We may skip from the first miracle of Jesus last week at the wedding in Cana right over to his his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And we might bypass this altogether because this This text is uncomfortable for us in a few different ways. But we have to approach Scripture as John intended for us to approach Scripture. And so we have to move from a miraculous sign at a wedding to a tense confrontation at the temple. And while these two events showcase different sides of Jesus, they're both essential in helping us walk into a fuller understanding of Jesus. So let's jump into it. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week at verse 12. Verse 12, John writes, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So before we get into the heart of the passage, we need to see John using verses 12 and 13 to transition from one event to the other. We're transitioning from a wedding party to Jesus at the temple for Passover. After the wedding, Jesus and his family and his disciples, they leave Cana and they make their way over to Capernaum. Now Jesus would, would later spend much more time in Capernaum. He'd spend months there preaching the gospel and, and doing miracles, but for now he's just passing through. They're just staying there a few days on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. In the Passover, the Jews is an annual celebration of God's faithfulness. It, it commemorated God's deliverance of His people from their slavery in Egypt. When the angel of death passed over every Jewish home with doorposts marked by the blood of the Lamb. And so each year they would commemorate this night by gathering in Israel and, and bringing an animal to sacrifice. And They'd sacrifice the animals in the afternoon. They'd have a huge feast in the evening. Passover was Instituted by God in Exodus 12 and mandated by God in Exodus 23. And so Jesus Christ, who's always obedient to the word of God, always obedient to the commands of God, would have participated in the Passover every year of his life. But this particular Passover was different. Because Jesus was different. For the first 30 years of the life, he came to the Passover as the son of Joseph the carpenter. And then this year, he's coming to the Passover as the Son of God. His earthly ministry is in full swing, and he is is calling men and women into repentance. And so during his first Passover, Jesus revealed himself to be the true prophet, priest, king, and judge. So let's read verses 14 through 17. It says, In the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip, of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So first, we see Jesus as a prophet who challenges the religious status quo. When Jesus walks into the temple with his family and his disciples, he doesn't find reverent worshipers. He finds opportunistic salesmen. He is shocked to see people selling animals in his father's house. He's floored to see people exchanging money in his father's house. And now we can be really quick when we read this text to immediately demonize the religious leaders. But we need to be careful. We need to see what's happening here. See how a couple harmless ideas that that would have been for the convenience of the people have morphed into these evil self-serving systems. Okay, let's break it down here. First, for Passover, Jewish men and women would have to travel 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles, maybe 100, 200 miles to get to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices to God. Do you know what's hard to carry 100 miles? A goat. You know, have you ever had to wrangle a goat? You know, my in laws have, have goats and they're hard to relocate to the other side of the yard, much less the other side of the region. And so, you can see where they started selling animals as as a way of convenience for the people. And it was the same thing with the money changers. You know, when a family made their annual trip to Jerusalem, they were expected to pay a temple tax. This is basically their, their tithe to the church for the year. And because many people would travel from different regions, they had the money changers set up to exchange their money into the proper currency. So again, they started exchanging money in the temple for the convenience of the people. And so on the surface the religious leaders set up systems to alleviate some of the burden from the people. I mean you can almost hear the sales pitch among the temple leaders, you know, you don't you don't have to travel long distances with a goat. You don't have to travel long distances with a lamb. You can you can just buy it here at the temple. You don't have to exchange your money at the bank. You don't have to stand in that line. You can just do it here in the temple. You know, the temple is now your one-stop shop for the Passover. And so we need to recognize here that that Jesus is not necessarily upset about the religious leaders providing a service for the people. You know, we can be so quick to take this passage and and, and apply it to our current context and, and condemn churches with bookstores, coffee shops, and ATM machines in their front foyers. But we need to recognize what Jesus is really condemning. He's not condemning selling animals for sacrifices, he's condemning making the transactions in the center of the temple. He's condemning a place reserved for reverent worship of his father being filled with all the smells and sounds of a zoo. He's not condemning exchanging money for the temple tax. He's condemning making the transactions at the center of the temple. He's condemning charging outrageous exchange rates. When he walks into his father's house, he doesn't see a house of worship. He finds a house of trade where opportunistic merchants are actively working to line their own pockets. And so it infuriates him. And he puts a stop to it. He grabs a whip and he he pours all the coins out on the ground and he turns over tables and he runs all the people and animals out of the temple. In that moment, he, he challenges the religious status quo. He confronts their blatant spiritual consumerism. See, the religious leaders have become spiritual consumers who were putting themselves at the center of worship, not God. And we can be tempted again to not see ourselves in the text. We can be tempted to use this as an opportunity to dunk on the Jews, to dunk on the religious leaders and to say, how can they be so dense? How can they think that this was morally acceptable in God's temple? How could they possibly imagine they're honoring God with their actions? But if we do, if we do that, we miss the warning for us. We miss the potential danger for us. We miss that spiritual consumerism was not just a problem reserved for Jesus' day. It's a problem for the contemporary church, too. We miss that there are plenty of ways to arrive at self-centered worship. Even well-intentioned ways. And let me give you a couple examples. When I was in seminary a few years ago, I heard the term seeker-sensitive church for the first time. And I didn't really know what it meant, but basically a, a seeker-sensitive church is a church that crafts their services, their events, their, their programs, their ministries around the guest. They leverage all of their money and resources towards making the guest feel comfortable, welcome, and encouraged. So you have seeker-sensitive churches, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have closed churches. Closed churches are basically closed for business. They may not admit it, they may not say it, they may not believe it, but they are inwardly focused on keeping their own flock happy, and they don't strive to share the gospel outside of their four walls. So with seeker-sensitive churches and closed churches, we see two extremes of spiritual consumerism. For all the ways these churches are different, they have the same problem. They're putting the desires and the comforts of men above the worship of God. And they look completely different. A secret, seeker-sensitive church may look like a concert and a TED Talk. And a, a closed church may be reminiscent of a country club. But when you, when you boil them down, they're both focused sometimes on making men happy. Seeker-sensitive churches, when they go too far with it, become focused on making guests happy above everything else. Enclosed churches, when they go too far with it, will start moving mountains to keep members happy. And so spiritual consumerism is so dangerous because it can prey on the best of our intentions. Do we want to be welcoming to guests? Absolutely. Do we want church members to be happy and and encouraged and fed and discipled? Certainly. But we can never go so far where we allow our wants and needs to interfere with our worship. We can never allow our desires to overrule God's desires. And so thankfully, in Jesus Christ, we have a prophet who consistently challenges us to avoid settling for the status quo. But Jesus isn't just a prophet. In these verses, we see that Jesus is also a priest who cleanses sin. Jesus isn't just a prophet who confronts sin. He's a priest who cleanses sin. Look at verse 15. He grabs a whip and he drives them out of the temple. See, one of the primary responsibilities in the Old Testament for a temple leader was to cleanse the temple to prepare it for worship and sacrifice but Jesus walks into a situation where the temple leaders have fallen asleep at the wheel they've allowed the temple to become a place of commerce it's a it's a petting zoo it's it's a bank so Jesus comes in and cleanses it he purges it of all its filthiness and ungodliness you know, often we approach this, this familiar text and we, we look at this moment of Jesus driving them out of the temple. We comment on His righteous anger. For, for 30 years of my life in the church, every time I hear about this moment or I hear about the time He cleanses the temple later in His ministry and the other three Gospels, they always talk about His righteous anger, the righteous anger of Jesus. And, and sometimes we we use this text and we misapply it and we, and we use it as an opportunity for ourselves to lose our tempers. Give us a license to lose our tempers. And now there are certainly issues in our society where we are completely justified to get upset. When we talk about abortion or sex trafficking or bullying or abuse of any kind, we are right to have a little bit of an edge to us. But we can't go too far with it. Look, we can't flip over a table when Vanderbilt scores a touchdown on Georgia in a few weeks. You know, just flip over a table at the tailgate. Send fluid flying everywhere. Your wife gives you a look and you just go, hey, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Okay, we can't go too far with this. It's certainly a great reminder for us that Jesus was not only kind and compassionate and tender, that he was also firm and intense and he had a little edge and he burned with righteous anger over sin. But we can't overlook the key aspect of why Jesus drove them out of the temple. When he drove them out, he was not only exercising judgment, he was also exercising mercy. Don't miss this. If it was only judgment, the text would say Jesus saw them And He left them in their sin. If it was only judgment, Jesus would have walked in the temple, He would have looked around, and He wouldn't have made a move, and He would have let them continue in their sin. Let them continue to move towards their destruction. But it wasn't only mercy, it it wasn't only judgment, it was mercy too. He confronted their sin, and then He cleansed their sin. Jesus cleansed the sins of the religious people who didn't even know that they needed to be cleansed. That's what's incredible about this. In the temple, they're going about their business believing they're honoring God. Believing that they're doing something that's morally okay and then Jesus confronts them. They don't even realize they're committing sin but Jesus confronts them and cleanses them anyway. Anyway. And it may not seem like it, but that's good news for us. When we experience Jesus disciplining us for sin in our life, we don't enjoy it. We don't like it. And it can be painful to have idols in our lives and selfish desires in our hearts chased out with whips and cords. But it's necessary for us. It's essential for us. We are called to emulate Christ. We're called to walk into His image, to strive towards His example. And for us to continue taking steps towards our goal, we have to be willing to allow Jesus to confront our sin and cleanse our sin. We need to let Jesus the prophet speak truth into the blind spots of our lives. And then let Jesus the priest clear out the sin in our hearts. So Jesus is the prophet, Jesus is the priest. And in verse 18, we see Jesus is the king. Verse 18, John writes, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So third, Jesus is a king who builds a new temple. In verse 18, we find the Jews are really offended. They ask Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Remember, the Jews are obsessed with acquiring and maintaining power. And so they're questioning the authority of Jesus to clear out the temple. They're basically saying, on what authority do you come into our religious gathering and call us sinners? On what authority do you feel permitted to to flip over tables and bring out a whip on us? On what authority do you feel that you can do these things? You should provide a sign for us to prove yourself to us. And throughout the Gospel of accounts, we see this same tension bubble up over and over again. Jesus claims power and authority, either through his his work or his words, and then the religious leaders ask him to prove his power and authority. And Jesus never really plays their game. He doesn't fulfill their request for a magic trick. You know, and sometimes part of me wishes that he would have. I think it would be amazing if in one of these situations Jesus just rolled up his sleeves and was like, What do you want to see? You know, I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe. I can do anything. You know, what do you want to see? But he never does it. Because he doesn't need to prove himself. And he knows a miracle would not satisfy them. Now, D.A. Carson explains it this way: He said a sign that would satisfy them. Presumably, some sort of miraculous display performed on demand would have signaled the domestication of God. That sort of God doesn't, does not powerful stunts to maintain allegiance. And that kind of allegiance is not worth having. You see, a God who performs signs on demand is no God at all. It's a, it's a pet. So Jesus doesn't perform for them. Instead, He offers them proposition. So he appears to say to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they comment that it took 46 years to build the current temple. And Jesus appears to be claiming if you destroy this temple, I can rebuild it in 72 hours. He appears to be saying if you want a sign so bad, you'll have to knock down the temple and see if I can actually do it. You'll have to destroy your sacred house of worship to see if I am who I say I am. And of course they don't do it. They don't bulldoze the temple. But we need to see an interesting note about their conversation. The Jews are asking Jesus for a sign. They're desperate for a sign for him to prove his authority. But he already had given them one. They wanted a sign and Jesus had already done one. And they had already missed it and the disciples caught it. Look back at Verse 17. When Jesus is clearing out the temple, his disciples are reminded of an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. They are reminded of Psalm 69.9, which promised the Messiah would be consumed with zeal for his father's house. King David had zeal for the temple, but King Jesus would have even more zeal. So Jesus comes into their midst. He fulfills the words prophesied by the Old Testament about the Messiah, and they miss it. He gives them a sign and they miss it because they weren't really looking for it. They didn't really want to see it. They're so blinded by their own desires, they couldn't see and understand who Jesus was and what he had already done in their presence. So Jesus provided a sign and, and they missed it. And then Jesus points to a coming sign and they miss it too. Look at verses 21 and 22. We get an editorial note from John. He explains that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. When Jesus invited them to destroy the temple, he's not only calling them out for their present desire for a sign, he was foreshadowing future events. He's referring to his own body. And so we can draw two parallels between the temple and Jesus' body. You know, The temple is a place where God meets man. And so Jesus is the word who became flesh so God could meet man in a new way. He tore the temple curtain. He bridged the gap. He provided a seat at the table. Because of his work, because he is the new temple, We don't have to go to a house of worship to meet with God. We can meet with God anywhere. We can meet with God in our bedroom, in our office, in our car, in Walmart, in our backyard, anywhere. Because of Christ, we have the ear of the God of the universe anytime, anyplace. And also the temple was a place where atoning sacrifices were made. And Jesus came as as the Lamb of God who would create a new system, who would usher in a new covenant, who would provide a perfect, ultimate, and final sacrifice. And so historically, in the Old Testament, the only person fit to build a temple in the Bible was a king. But here we have King Jesus who who, who was different. King Jesus who wasn't talking about building a physical temple. He was saying, I am the temple. If we flesh this out a little bit, he's essentially saying to them, what's going to happen in a few years? He's essentially saying to them, I know you'll destroy me. I know you'll arrest me in the garden. I know you'll host a mock trial. I know you'll embarrass me, shame me, beat me, crush me. I know you'll crucify me on the cross. But after three days, I will rise again. If you destroy this temple, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. See, they were desperate for a sign. But there's no greater sign than the empty grave. There's no greater sign than Jesus defeating Satan's sin and death on the cross. Jesus is a king who builds a new temple. And then finally, the last three verses of chapter 2 we fast forward a little bit uh, and, and kind of get an overview of the rest of Passover. Starting in verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what is in man. So finally, Jesus is a judge who cannot be deceived. Now we need to be extremely careful in our understanding of these three verses. At first glance, we may, we may freak out a little bit when we read this. Because in verse 23, we see many believed in his name. And then in verse 24, we see, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And so the the, the Greek verbs for believe and entrust are very similar words. They they almost mean the exact same thing. So, So in a way, John is reporting many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus, because he knew everything, did not believe in them. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. That's a horrifying concept for us. That's a scary thought. John is reporting, and again we see this pop up in other places in Scripture, that there is a certain kind of belief that is not saving belief. There is such a thing as false salvation. Now before we fall into a a death spiral of doubt, fear, and worry about our salvation, before we start reflecting on our entire life and asking, is is my belief valid? Does Christ accept me? Am I okay? What do I do? Let's take a breath. And let's read verse 23 again. Verse 23 says, Many believed in his name when they saw what? What did they see? When they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed in the signs. And we see the same thread throughout Scripture Jesus will do a miracle. He'll perform a sign. He'll provide for felt needs. He'll create food out of nothing. He'll he'll heal the sick. He'll cure the disease. He'll mend broken relationships. And many people in the crowd will love the signs, but few will love Jesus. So we don't have a case of Jesus rejecting people. We don't have a case of Jesus looking at the crowd and looking at these people and saying, yeah, yeah, Your faith's not good enough. You're just not good enough for me. I'm sorry. No, we have a case of people rejecting Jesus. And because Jesus could see their true nature, He doesn't entrust Himself to them because He knows them. So John is reminding us we can't put on a projection of godliness and trick God. You can't do it. You can't have a broken relationship with God and then just walk in the church on the weekend and act like everything's okay and trick your heavenly Father. When you If you do that, He's not sitting in heaven just going, well, apparently, He's doing amazing. He's really into me. Did you see Him raise His hands during that worship song? Did you see how much His tithe check was? Man, He really likes us. He likes us a lot. Jesus, did you see that? No. We can't trick God. We can't fool God. And so we need to feel the weight of this verse for a moment. We need to feel the the weight of verse 24. And the weight is necessary because the weight says that there is a thin, shallow way of trying to follow Jesus that is unacceptable to him. He sees it, he recognizes it, he knows it, and he calls it out. A few years ago, I heard Matt Chandler preach at a conference on the idea of young adults who are de churched. They de churched. Person is someone who grew up in the church or spent a, a significant amount of, of their youth in the church and then they got to college and they, they punted on their faith. They, they moved on from it. You know, and according to LifeWay research, almost 70% of young adults between 18 and 25 who grew up in the church will leave the church for at least a year in college. And about half of that group will ultimately come back, but the others won't. And so because Matt Chandler serves in the Bible Belt, and because he's seen it happen over and over again, he he was excited to do his homework. He he read studies, he made phone calls, he sent emails, he interviewed other church leaders. And here were his conclusions from his research. He said, what came out of the data was a lot of testimonies from 20-year-olds who said things like, I tried to wait for true love. I tried to stay away from this, I tried to walk in that, I tried to do this, but ultimately I failed. And I figured in my failure, there was no way God could love me. I figured because of the frequency of my failure, there was no way God could forgive me the way the Bible says that He forgives me. And so without ever receiving the true grace and mercy of God that that cheers us on as we as we stumble through the dirt and the mud of life towards sanctification, they just got to a point where they decided, I'm not good enough. I can't reach God's bar. I'm out. In his research, Chandler found a consistent thread of young adults who were saying the same things. He found a consistent thread of young adults who never truly found Jesus. They were briefly impressed with the signs. They were briefly engaged by the message. But they fell away because they couldn't keep up with God's standard of holiness. They never heard the true gospel message. And that's what makes it incredibly sad for us. You know, they never understood that they would never live up to God's standard. They never understood that they would fall short of it daily. And though our consistent sin should separate us from a holy God who can't be in the presence of sin, that there's good news to the gospel. That this same God, because of great mercy and love for us, sent His Son, Jesus. Who came as a prophet who would confront our sin. A priest who would cleanse our sin. And a king who would establish a new kingdom. Who would defeat sin and death on the cross. And when we place our trust in Him as Savior and Lord, we're judged not on our righteousness. Not on the boxes we check. Not on the goals we accomplish. Not on our ability to live up to God's standard. But we are judged on Christ's righteousness. And we become children of God. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Father. I just thank you for this word. I thank you uh, for Second Timothy three telling us that that your word is 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 profitable for for every situation. For teaching, for preaching, for for reproof, for accountability. Your word is perfect. And even in a passage like this where there are elements of it we're uncomfortable Lord it's what we need to hear. Though it may make us uncomfortable though it may step on our toes it's what we need. Because Lord our, our hope is that we are daily being conformed into the image of your son. And So Lord we thank you for Jesus we thank you the cross we thank you that Jesus came as our prophet priest king and judge Lord we thank you for the gospel and so Lord I pray that as we come into a time of response that you would help us to evaluate our own hearts you'd help us to ask ourselves do we trust Jesus as our Savior Have we submitted to Him as our Lord? Are we working to be conformed to His image? Do we see a pattern of spiritual growth in our lives? Lord, allow us to, to wrestle with these questions in these closing moments. And Lord, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who doesn't have a good answer to those questions or isn't sure about their answer to those questions, Father, I pray that You would help them take the first steps towards salvation today. Take their first steps in following Jesus. Because The first step is hard, Lord, but every step that follows is completely worth it. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for this word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.